I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Oh, well, this is the reason why all the kids love drinking White Claw. It's, it's delicious. It, it doesn't make me feel bloated. Oh, oh, hello. Ah, welcome to the mansion of Leaves of Glen. Here uh, in my drawing room. Quite a little bit. I'm never going to give it up. This is where I read to you the hottest public domain books and short stories. Uh, this week, we'll read Chapter 17 of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. It's the eighth novel uh, that he wrote, published in 1849 to 1850. Uh, first as a serial, and then he said, I can make more money if I just put it all together in one book. So he did in 1850. And it's considered his most popular work. Born the 7th of February, 1812. Uh, dead the 9th of June. 1870. I've given up trying to find anything to do with the Batman suit. He has a secret room, or he had a secret room in a study, burp, uh, where he, you could move a, a bookcase and then it had a, a whole separate secret room back there with a bunch of fake volumes of books like uh, uh, Nine Lives of a Cat, Volume 1 through 9, things like that. Uh, yeah, cute. But then one, uh, I think it was discoverwalks.com, mentioned that he had a Batman suit in there. And, of course, that intrigued me because I want to know what that means for his time. And I uh, can't find anything else on it. I give up. If anyone knows anything about Charles Dickens' Batman suit, for the love of God, please let me know. So, instead, I looked up some more fun facts. Uh, turns out he had a pet raven. <laughs> he owned a pet raven named Grip. Grip was not only a beloved pet, but also featured in one of his novels, uh, Barney Rudge. Dickens had disclosed to his friend George that he always wanted to write about a character who had a pet raven, a raven that was cleverer than its owner. Well, Grip died uh, after eating lead paint chips. <laughs> Aww. You always hear jokes about people eating lead paint chips and then all the horrible things that happened to him. That actually happened for real uh, to poor Grip. But he was soon replaced by another uh, who was also uh, named Grip. Well, that's sad. Did the first Grip not mean anything to you? Just keep replacing one Grip after another? Uh, this raven inspired Edgar Allan Poe uh, to write the poem, The Raven. Well, that's weird. Uh, well, maybe he saw the, the horror of a man owning a raven, naming it, and then not caring if it dies, just getting another one and naming it. Maybe that's what inspired him. Uh, after his second pet died, Dickens had it stuffed by a taxidermist and placed it in a wooden and glass case. The bird is now in the Free Library of Philadelphia. So, there you go. Everyone's over there uh, lavishing praise on the second to least important bird. Recap the previous chapter. David goes to his new school and meets the headmaster, Dr. Strong. Uh, and Annie, uh, who is a little bit older than himself... Uh, turns out Dr. Strong is married to Annie. Gross. David and the Wickfields agree that he'll 
uh, go live with them for the remainder of his school year. Uh, and David, of course, still hates Uriah Heep and keeps finding new and exciting ways to insult this poor, pale-skinned, red-haired boy. And we find out that Uriah just wants to be a lawyer, uh, and he's been studying up on it. Uh, so that's sad, demonizing this poor little man. But, uh, God, how much time do we have left until the grandfather clock? Ugh, I put the grandfather clock in there so I wouldn't ramble on for hours and hours so that my intro segment is like 20 minutes long. And now I got, uh, got nothing to say. Ugh, my personal life? Uh, trying to diet. So that's not going well, but I'm still trying. It's, the weather's uh, nice. So I've been wa- walking out, outside in the weather, so... Uh, I dress a little better so people don't get scared of me like they used to when I'd be walking around. So I guess that's one upside, is that I've made small improvements on my life. You might even say I'm a little cocksure as I'm out there on the road. A little too prideful of myself. Oh, thank God. Because that was going nowhere. But with that, let's uh, dive into Chapter 17. Chapter 17, Ah, Somebody Turns Up. It has not occurred to me to mention Peggotty since I ran away, but of course I wrote her a letter almost as soon as I was housed at Dover, uh, and another, uh, and a longer letter, uh, containing all particulars fully related uh, when my aunt took me formally under her protection. On my being settled at Dr. Strong's, I wrote to her again, detailing my happy condition and prospects. I never could have uh, derived anything like the pleasure from spending the money Mr. Dick had given me uh, that I felt in spending a gold half-guinea to Peggotty per post, enclosed in the last letter, to discharge the sum I had borrowed of her, colon, in which epistle, this is a big, long, big, long paragraph, and there's no period, in which epistle, uh, not before, I mentioned about the young man with the donkey cart, period, there, finally. To these communications, Peggotty replied as promptly, if not as concisely, as a merchant's clerk. Hmm, her utmost powers of expression, which were certainly not greatening, were exhausted in the attempt to write uh, what she felt on the subject of my journey. Four sides of incoherent and interjectional beginnings of sentences uh, that had no end uh, except blots were inadequate to afford her any relief. But the blots were more expressive to me than the best composition, for they showed me that Peggotty had been crying all over the paper. And what could I have desired more? Eh, question mark. I made out, uh, without much difficulty, uh, that she could not take quite kindly to my aunt yet. The, the notice was too short after so long a preposition uh, the other way. We never knew a person, she wrote, but to think that Miss Betsy should seem to be so different from what she had been thought to be, uh, was a moral exclamation point, M-dash, that was her word. She was evidently still afraid of Miss Betsy, for she sent her grateful duty to her, but timidly. And she was evidently afraid of me too, and, and entertained the probability of my running away again soon. If I might judge from the repeated hints she threw out, 
that the coach fare to Yarmouth was always to be had of her for the asking. Yeah, she gave me uh, one piece of intelligence, which affected me uh, very much, namely that there had been a sale of the furniture at her old home, oh, and that Mr. and Mrs. Murdstone were gone away, and the, the house was shut up, uh, to be let or sold. God knows I had no part in it while they remained there, but it, it pained me to think of the dear old place as, as altogether abandoned, of the weeds growing tall in the garden, and the fallen leaves lying thick and wet upon the paths. I imagined how the winds of winter would howl round it, how the cold rain would beat upon the window glass, how the moon would make ghosts on the walls of the empty rooms watching their solitude all night. I thought afresh of the grave in the churchyard underneath the tree, and it seemed as if the house were dead too now, and all connected with my father and mother were, were faded away. That was really well written and very sad. There was no other news in Peggotty's letters. Uh, Mr. Barkis was an excellent husband, she said. Still a little near, but we all uh, had our faults. And she had plenty, though I'm not sure I know what they were. And he sent his duty, and my little bedroom was always ready for me. Uh, Mr. Peggotty was well, and uh, Ham was well, and Mrs. Gummidge was uh, but poorly, eh, as always. And uh, little Emily wouldn't send her love, but said that Peggotty might send it if she liked. Well, that's creepy and fussy that Emily wouldn't send her love and then told her, you can send it if you like. But then that she, Peggotty took the time to write that in there just to jab him a little bit, just to make him hurt a little bit. All this intelligence I dutifully imparted to my aunt, only reserving to myself the mention of little Emily, whom I distinctively felt that she would not be very tenderly inclined. While I was yet new at Dr. Strong's, she made several excursions over to Canterbury to see me, and always at unseasonable hours, uh, with the view, I suppose, of taking me eh, by surprise. Ah, but finding me well employed and bearing a good character and hearing on all hands that I rose fast in the school, she soon discontinued these visits. I saw her on a, on a, ooh, a Saturday every third or fourth week when I went over to Dover's for a treat. And I saw uh, Mr. Dick every alternate Wednesday when he arrived by stagecoach at noon to stay until uh, next morning. On these occasions... Mr. Dick never traveled without a lantern, writing desk, uh, containing a supply of stationery, and the memorial. In relation to which document he had a notion that time was beginning to press now, and that it really must be got out of hand. Uh, Mr. Dick was very partial to gingerbread. To render his visits uh, the more agreeable, my aunt had instructed me to open a credit for him at a, a cake shop, which was hampered with the stipulation that he should not be served with more than one shilling's worth in the course of any one day. This and the reference uh, of all his little bills at the country inn where he slept uh, to my aunt before they were paid induced me to suspect uh, that he was only allowed to rattle his money uh, and not to spend it. And then I found on further investigation that this was so. Or at least there was an agreement between him and my aunt that he should account to her for all his disbursements. As he had no uh, idea of deceiving her and always desired to please her, he was thus made cherry ah, of launching into expense. Now at this point, uh, as well as on all of the possible points, Mr. Dick was convinced that uh, my aunt was the wisest and most wonderful of women. 
as he repeatedly told me with infinite secrecy and always in a whisper, Trotwood, said Mr. Dick, with an air of mystery after imparting his confidence to me uh, one Wednesday, who's the man that hides near our house and frightens her? Yeah, yeah frightens, uh, frightens my aunt, sir? Yeah, Dick nodded. I thought nothing would have frightened her, he said, for she's, and here, he whispered softly. I thought he was already whispering. That's why I'm sort of doing uh, for whatever. Don't mention it. The wisest and most wonderful of women. Having said which, he drew back to observe the effect uh, which this description of her made upon me. The first time he came, said Mr. Dick, was to, let me see, 1649 was the date of King Charles' execution. I think you said 1649? Uh, yes, sir. I don't know how it can be, said Mr. Dick, sorely puzzled and shaking his head. I don't think I am as uh, old as that. Uh, was it was it in that year that the man appeared, sir? I asked. Why, really? Said Mister Dick. I don't see how it could have been that year, Trotwood. Did you get Did you get the date out of history? Yes, sir. I suppose history never lies, does it? Said Mister Dick with a gleam of hope. Oh dear, no, sir. I replied most decisively. I was ingenious and young, and I thought so. I can't make it out, said Mr. Dick, shaking his head. There's something wrong somewhere. However, it was very soon after the mistake was made of putting some of the trouble out of King Charles' head uh, into my head that the man first came. I was walking out uh, with Miss Trotwood after tea, uh, just after dark. There he was, close to our house. Uh, Walking about, I inquired. Walking about, repeated Mr. Dick. Ah, let me see, I must recollect a bit. No, 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 he was not walking about. I asked, as the shortest way to get at it, what he was doing. Well, he wasn't there at all, said Mr. Dick, until he came up behind her and whispered. Then she turned around and fainted. And I stood still, looked at him, and, uh, and he walked away. Uh, but that he should have been, have been hiding ever since in the ground or somewhere is the most extraordinary thing. Has he been hiding ever since, I asked. To be sure he has, reported Mr. Dick, nodding his head gravely. Never came out till last night. Uh, we were walking last night, and he came up behind her again, and I knew him again. Uh, did he frighten my aunt again? All of a shiver, said Mr. Dick, counterfeiting that affection and making his teeth chatter. Held by the palings, cried, Ah, but Trotwood, come here, getting close to him, uh, that he might whisper very softly, Why did she give him money, boy, in the moonlight? Uh, He was a a beggar, perhaps? Mr. Dick shook his head, as uh, utterly renouncing the suggestion, having replied a great many times and with great confidence, No beggar, no beggar, no beggar, sir, went on to say, uh, that from his window he had afterwards and late at night seen my aunt give this person money outside the garden rails in the moonlight, who then slunk away into the ground again, as he thought probable and was seen no more while my aunt came hurriedly and secretly back into the house, and had even uh, that morning been quite different from her usual self, which preyed on Mr. Dick's mind. I had not uh, the least belief in the outset of his story that the unknown was anything but a delusion of Mr. Dick's, and one of a line of the ill-fated prince who occasioned him so much difficulty. But after some reflection, I began to entertain the question whether an attempt, or a threat of an attempt, might have been twice made uh, to take poor Mr. Dick himself from under my aunt's protection, 
and whether my aunt, uh, the strength of whose kind feeling toward him I knew from herself, might have been induced to pay a price for his peace and quiet. As I was already much attached to Mr. Dick, and uh, very solicitous of his welfare, my fears favored this supposition. For a long uh, time, his Wednesday hardly ever came round, without my entertaining a misgiving that he would not be on the coach box as usual. There he always appeared, however, gray-headed, laughing and happy, and he never had anything more to tell of the man who could frighten my aunt. These Wednesdays were the happiest days of Mr. Dick's life. They were far from being the least happy of mine. He soon became known uh, to every boy in the school, and though he never took an active part in any game but uh, kite-flying, he was deeply interested in all our sports as anyone among us. How, how often I've seen him uh, intent upon a match at marbles or uh, peg-peg-top? I'm not looking it up. Looking on with a face of unutterable interest and hardly breathing at the critical times. How often at hare and hounds have I seen him mounted on a little knoll, cheering the whole field on to action and, and waving his hat above his gray head, oblivious of King Charles and Marta's head and all belonging to it. How many a summer hour have I known to be but blissful minutes to him in the cricketed field, cricket field, I'm sorry, I got distracted. Someone texted me. It's my neighbor lady who is obsessed that there's a cat walking around the neighborhood. She's been trying to catch it, and I'm not kidding. She even called the cops once because she wants the cops to take the cat away. The woman's insane. So she's texting me again, and I refuse to read it. Uh, but it screwed up me saying the cricket field. Uh, how many winter days have I seen him standing blue-nosed in the snow and east wind, looking at the boys going down the long slide and clapping his worsted gloves in rapture? He was a universal favorite, and his ingenuity in little things was transient. He could cut uh, or oranges into <laughs> such, such devices as none of us had an idea of. He could make a boat, oh, out of anything from a skewer upwards. He could turn a, a cramp bones into chessmen, uh, fashion Roman chariots from old court cards, make spoked wheels out of cotton reels and, and bird cages out of old wire. But he was the greatest of all, perhaps, in the articles of stringed straw, which, he, uh, which we were all persuaded he could do anything that could be done by hands. Mr. Dick's renown was not long confined to us, after a few Wednesdays, Dr. Strong himself made some inquiries uh, of me about him, and I told him all my aunt had told me, which interested the doctor so much that he requested, on the occasion of his next visit, to be presented to him. And this ceremony I performed, and the doctor, begging Mr. Dick, whatsoever he should not find me at the coach office, to come on there and rest himself until our morning's work was over. He soon passed into a custom for Mr. Dick to come on as a matter of course, and, and if we were a, a little late, as often happened on a Wednesday, to walk about the courtyard waiting for me. Here he made the acquaintance of the doctor's beautiful young wife, paler uh, than formerly all this time, more rarely seen by me or anyone, I think, and not so gay, but not less beautiful, and so became more and more familiar by degrees until at last he would come into the school and wait. He always sat in a particular corner on a particular stool, which was called Dick. 
<laughs> after him. They named the st- the stool after him. Just the stool, just Dick the stool. It's like having a an easy chair named Glenn. Here he would sit with his gray head bent forward, attentively listening to whatever might be going on, with a profound veneration for the learning he had never been able to acquire. This veneration, Mister Dick extended to the doctor, whom he thought the most subtle and accomplished philosopher of any age. It was long before Mr. Dick ever spoke to him otherwise than bareheaded. And even when he and the doctor had struck up quite a friendship uh, and would walk together by the hour on that side of the courtyard, which was known among us as the doctor's walk, Mr. Dick would pull off his hat at intervals to show respect for wisdom and knowledge. How it ever came about that the doctor began to read out scraps of the famous dictionary in these walks I never knew. Perhaps he, he felt it all the same. At first, as reading to himself, however, it passed into a custom too, and Mr. Dick, listening with a face shining with pride and pleasure, in his heart of hearts, believed the dictionary to be the most delightful eh, book in the world. Those are sad times when someone's like, hey, hey, why don't you come over here? I'm going to read to you parts of the dictionary. And the other person's like, oh, oh, God, and then runs over there because he wants to hear it. There had to have been better things to read back then. As I think of them going up and down before those schoolroom windows, the doctor reading with his complacent smile, an occasional eh, flourish of the manuscript or grave motion of his head, and Mr. Dick listening and chained by interest, with his poor wits calmly wandering God knows where upon the wings of hard words, I think of it as one of the pleasantest of things in a quiet way that I have ever seen. I I feel as if they might go walking to and fro forever, and the world might somehow be the better for it, as if a thousand things it makes a noise about were not one half as good for it or me. Uh, Agnes was one of Mr. Dick's friends uh, very soon, and in often coming to the house, he made acquaintance with uh, Uriah. The friendship between uh, himself and me increased continually, and it was maintained on this odd footing that while Mr. Dick came professedly to look after me as my guardian, he always consulted me in any little matter of doubt that arose, and invariably guided himself by my advice, not only having a high respect for my native sagacity, but considering that I inherited a good deal from my aunt. Well, one Thursday morning, when I was about to walk with Mr. Dick from the hotel to the coach office before going back to school, for we had an hour's school before breakfast in parentheses, I met Uriah in the street, who reminded me of the promise I had made to take tea with himself and his mother, adding with a writhe, Oh, oh, but I don't expect you to keep it, Master Copperfield. We're so very humble. I really had not yet been able to uh, make up my mind whether I liked Uriah or detested him. Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. And also, if your choices are I like him or I absolutely hate him with all my heart, the fact that you get the hate him with all my heart part, it just means you hate him with all your heart. And I was very doubtful about it still as I stood looking him in the face in the street. Oh, but I felt it quite a front to be supposed proud and said I only wanted to be asked. Oh, if... Uh, Ah, that's all, Master Copperfield, said Uriah. And it really isn't our humbleness <laughs> that prevents you. Hey, will you, will you come this evening? Oh, but if it's our humbleness, I hope you won't mind owning to it, Master Copperfield, for we are well aware of our condition. I said I'd mention it to Mr. Wickfield. And if he, uh, if he approved, as I had no doubt he would, I would come with, uh, 
Ugh, pleasure. So at six o'clock that evening, which was one of the early office evenings, I announced myself as ready to Uriah. Oh, mother will be so proud indeed, he said as he walked away uh, together. Or she would be proud if if it wasn't sinful, uh, Master Copperfield. Oh, my God. The way he writes this character, he's just like this simpering, yeah. Yet you didn't mind supposing I was proud this morning, I returned. Oh, so now he's being a little, a little snotty himself. Oh, dear, no, Master Copperfield, returned Uriah. Oh, believe me, no, such a thought never came into my head. I shouldn't have deemed it uh, at all proud if you had thought us too humble for you, because we are so very humble. Have you been studying much law lately? I asked to change the subject. Oh, uh, Master Copperfield, he said with a, an air of self-denial, my reading is hardly to be called study. I have passed an hour or two in the evening, eh, sometimes with, with, with Mr. Tidd, "'Rather hard, I suppose,' said I. Uh, "'He is hard to me sometimes,' returned Uriah. "'But I don't know what he might be a a gifted uh, person.' "'After beating a little tune on his chin as he walked on "'with the two forefingers of his skeleton right hand, (laughs) "'he added, "'There are uh, uh, two expressions, you see, Mr. Copfield, "'Latin words and terms uh, in Mr. Tidd "'that are trying to a reader of my humble attainments.' Would you like to be taught Latin? I said briskly. I will uh, teach it to you with pleasure as I learn it. Oh, that's nice of him, considering that he's not sure if he can't stand the kid. Oh, thank you, Mr. Copperfield, he answered, shaking his head. I'm sure it's very kind of you to make the offer, but I am too much uh, humble to accept it. Yeah, what nonsense, Uriah. Oh, indeed, you must excuse me, Mr. Copperfield. I am greatly obliged... And I should like it of all things, I assure you, but I am far too humble. Uh, there are people enough to tread upon me in my lowly state without by, uh, my doing outrage to their feelings by possessing uh, learning. You see, uh, learning ain't for me. A person like myself had better not aspire. If he's to get on in life, he must get on uh, humbly, Master Copperfield. Oh. Oh, I never saw his mouth so wide (laughs) or the creases in his cheeks so deep as when he delivered himself of these sentiments, shaking his head all the time and writhing modestly. (laughs) God, really just does not write flattering or has any empathy for this character. Oh, I think you're wrong, Uriah, I said. I dare say there are several things that I could teach you if you would like to learn them. Ooh, like a slap in the face. Oh, I don't doubt that, Master Copperfield, he answered. Not in the least. But not being humble yourself, you don't judge well, perhaps, uh, for them that are. I won't uh, provoke my betters with uh, knowledge, thank you. I'm much too humble. Here's my humble dwelling, Master Copperfield. We entered a low, old-fashioned room, walked straight into it from the street, and found uh, there Mrs. Heap who was the dead image of Uriah, only short. She received me with the utmost humility and apologized to me for giving your son a kiss. Why would she apologize? David's running around kissing all sorts of people all the time, and then all of a sudden she does it in front of him. She's like, oh my God, I'm sorry I kissed my son. Observing that lowly as they were, they had their natural affections, which they hoped would give no offense to anyone. It was a perfectly decent room, half parlor, uh, half kitchen, but not all uh, a snug room. 
The tea things were set upon the table, and the kettle was boiling on the hob. There was a chest of drawers with a escritor top. Well, all right, fine. I'm finally going to look up a word. Esquitar. A small writing desk with drawers and compartments. Well, all right, fine. For Uriah to read or write at of, a, of an evening. There was Uriah's blue bag laying down and vomiting papers. <laughs> there was a company of Uriah's books commanded by Mr. Tidd. There was a corner cupboard. Oh, they love corners. Uh, and there were the usual articles of furniture. I don't, uh, I don't remember that any individual object had a bare, pinched, square look. But I do remember that the whole place had. It was perhaps a part of Mrs. Heap's humility that she still wore weeds. What? Notwithstanding the lapse of time that had occurred since Mr. Heap's decease, she still wore weeds. So just wearing flowers in remembrance of her dead husband? I think there was some uh, compromise in the cap, but otherwise she was as weedy as in the early days of her mourning. Well, that's just sad. This is a day to be remembered, my Uriah, I am sure, said Mrs. Heap, taking the, making the tea. When Master Copperfield pays us a visit, I said, you'd think so, Mother, said Uriah. If I could have uh, wished Father to remain among us for any reason, said Mrs. Heap, oh boy, here it comes, it would have been that he might have known his company this afternoon. Ugh. I felt embarrassed by these compliments, but I was sensible, too, of being entertained as a, an honored guest, and I thought, uh, well, Mrs. Heap, an agreeable woman. My Uriah, said Mrs. Heap, has looked forward to this, sir, a long while. Oh, he had his fears that her humbleness, oh, her too, stood in the way, and I joined in them myself. Humble we are, humble we have been, humble we shall ever be. Ugh, now I could... I can see why you'd hate all these people. I'm sure that you have no occasion to be so, ma'am, I said, unless you like. Oh, thank you, sir, retorted Mrs. Heap. Uh, we know our, our, station, our station, and we're thankful in it. I found that Mrs. Heap gradually got nearer to me, and that uh, Uriah gradually got opposite to me, and that they were uh, respectfully plied me with choicest of the edibles on the table. This is just smothering. <laughs> there was nothing particularly choice there, to be sure, but I took the will for the deed and felt that they were very attentive. Presently, they began to talk about aunts, and then I told them about uh, mine, and about fathers and mothers, and then I told them about mine, and then Mrs. Heap began to talk about fathers-in-law, and I began to tell her about mine, but stopped because my aunt had advised me to observe a silence on that subject. Uh, a, a tender young cork however, would have had no more chance against a pair of corkscrews or a tender young ah, tooth against a pair of uh, did, uh, dentists or a little shuttlecock against the two battledores. And then I had against Uriah and Mrs. Keith. They did just what they liked with me and wormed things out of me that I had no desire to tell with a certainty I blush to think of. The more especially... As in my juvenile frankness, I took some credit to myself for being so confidential and felt that I was uh, quite the patron of my two respectful entertainers. Well, with that, let's, uh, ooh, let's take a little break. And let's go up to the uh, master bedroom. You'd like to come here to have fun, right? Let's have a little fun. Let's go up to the master bedroom. Let's go uh, hang out on my, my giant four-posted bed as I read to you upcoming romance literature. 
Ah, there you are. On my bed, wearing that silky outfit uh, that you know I like so much. Well, I'm not in the mood for that. Why don't you put on these thick glasses and get your, your fingers real long and slender, like you computer nerd, as we learn about The Dating Plan by Sarah Desai. Uh, even with a step-by-step plan, these fake fiancés might accidentally fall for each other in this hilarious, heartfelt, romantic comedy from the author of The Marriage Game. Daisy Patel uh, is a software engineer who understands lists and logic better than bosses and boyfriends. With her life all planned out and no interest in love, the one thing she can't give her family is the marriage they expect. Left with a few options, yeah, she asked her childhood crush uh, to be her decoy fiancé. <laughs> Liam Murphy, always oh, a venture capitalist with something to prove, ha-ha. And when he learns that his inheritance is contingent on being married, when that's convenient, he realizes his best friend's little sister has the perfect solution to his problem. A marriage of convenience will get Daisy's matchmaking relatives off her back and fulfill the terms of his late grandfather's will. (laughs) That's what's in the will. You got to be married or you can't inherit my fortune. If only he hadn't broken her tender teenage heart nine years ago. Sparks fly when Daisy and Liam go on a series of dates to legitimize their fake relationship. Too late, they realize that very little is convenient about their arrangement. History and chemistry aren't about to follow the rules of this engagement. Because she's she's got a a calculator for a heart, and he turned the calculator upside down and spelt 8008, and it won her over. Well, there you go. That's The Dating Plan by Sarah Desai. Uh, comes out March 16th for 16 bucks at Barnes & Noble. Books a Million, which I've still never heard of. Bookshop.org, which I'm familiar with. Hudson Booksellers? Nope. IndieBound? Uh-uh. Powell's? Nope. Target? Ah, uh, well, yeah. Walmart and Amazon. So if you like to settle for less, dive into that book. And let's... Uh, Let's give up. I'm not horny anymore. And we'll go back to the library and finish reading chapter 17. Alright, uh, uh, where do we leave off? Ah, they were very fond of one another, that was certain, I take it, that had its effect upon me as a touch of nature. But the skill with which one followed up whatever the other said was a touch of art, ah, which I was still less proof against. When there was nothing more to be got out of me about myself, uh, for on the Murdstone and Grinby life, and on my journey, I was dumb, that was in parentheses, uh, they began about Mr. Wickfield and Agnes. Uriah threw the ball to Mrs. Heap. Mrs. Heap caught it, uh, and threw it uh, back to Uriah. Uriah kept it up a, a little while, then sent it back to Mrs. Heap. And so they went on tossing it about until I had no idea who had got it and was quite bewildered. The ball itself was always changing, too. Now it was Mr. Wickfield. Now Agnes. Now the excellence of Mr. Wickfield. Now my admiration of Agnes. Now the uh, extent of Mr. Wickfield's business and resources. Now our domestic life after dinner. Now the wine uh, that Mr. Wickfield took. Ooh, yeah, don't give that kind of info away. The reason why he took it, and the pity that it was that he took so much. Now one thing, 
now another, then uh, uh, everything at once, and all the time without appearing to speak very often or to do anything but sometimes uh, encourage them a little. For fear, they should be overcome by their humility and the honor of my company. I found myself perpetually letting out uh, something or other that I had no business to let out, and seeing the effect of it in the twinkling of Uriah's dinted nostrils. <laughs> Not the twinkling of his eye, the twinkling of his dinted nostrils, so his nose is sweaty and the, the candlelight's hitting it just right. Ugh. I had begun to be a little uh, uncomfortable. You know, I'm, I'm learning to dislike these characters greatly, the way he writes about them. But at the same time, I'm realizing this is just the author not liking uh, this, this character and just making him miserable and unlikable. So I don't know how to feel. And to wish myself well out of the visit when a figure coming down the street uh, passed the door. Uh, dash, it stood open to the air with the room, which was warm. The weather being close for the time of year, Dash came back again, looked in, uh, and just walked in, exclaiming loudly, Copperfield, is it possible? Can you do that? Can I just walk down the street and then just walk into someone's home and be like, Phil! It's probably not Phil, but just, oh, whoops, sorry, and then turn around and walk out again. It was uh, Mr. McWeber. It was Mr. McWeber with his, with his eyeglass and his, uh, his walking stick and his shirt collar and his, uh, his genteel air and the condescending roll in his voice. All complete exclamation point. My dear Copperfield, said Mr. McWeber, putting out his hand, this is indeed a meeting which is calculated to impress the mind with a sense of the instability and uncertainty of all human, M-dash, in short, comma, it is a most extraordinary meeting, period. Walk along the street, uh, reflecting upon the, uh, ooh, I don't know, the probability of something turning up, uh, of which I am at present rather sanguine, I find a, a young but valued friend turn up, uh, who is connected with the most eventful period of my life, I may say, with the turning point of my existence. Copperfield, uh, my dear fellow, uh, how, how do you do? I cannot say, I really cannot say, that I was glad to see Mr. McWeber there, but I was glad to see him too and shook hands with him heartily, inquiring how Mrs. McWeber was. Oh, thank you, said Mr. McWeber, waving his hand of old and, and setting his chin in his shirt collar. She is tolerably convalescent. The twins eh, no longer derive their sustenance from nature's founts. Oh, that's a weird way of putting that. Say breastfeeding or something. Uh, natural milk. Yeah, nature's founts. In short, said Mr. McWeber, in one of the bursts of confidence, they are weaned. <laughs> and Mrs. McWeber is, at present, my traveling companion. She will be rejoiced, Copperfield, to renew her acquaintance with the, the one who's proved himself in all respects a worthy minister at the sacred altar of friendship. Can you imagine if someone talked that way now, like you ran into someone at work and they gave a big long speech about how it's been a while since they've seen you and then referred to the altar of friendship that you both worship at? I said I should be delighted to see her. Oh, you are very good, said Mr. McWeber. Mr. McWeber uh, then smiled, setting his chin again and, and uh, looked about him. I've discovered my friend Copperfield, said Mr. McWeber genteelly without addressing himself particularly to anyone. 
Not in solitude, but partaking of a social meal in company, yeah, which he shouldn't have been barging in on, with a widow lady, and one who is apparently her offspring. In short, said Mr. McWeber, in another of his uh, bursts of confidence, her son, I shall esteem it an honor to be presented. I could do no less under these circumstances than uh, eh, make Mr. McWeber known to uh, Uriah Heep and his uh, uh, mother, which I accordingly did, and they abased themselves before him. Mr. McWeber took a seat, just inviting himself in, and waved his hand in the most courtly manner. Any friend of my friend Copperfield's, said Mr. McWeber, has a personal claim upon myself. Oh, we're too humble, sir. Oh, they're just squirming now, said Mrs. Heath, my son and me, to be the friends of Master Copperfield. He has uh, been so good as to take his tea with us. Uh, we are thankful for him for his company. Also to you, sir, for your notice. Ma'am, returned Mr. McWeber with a, with a bow, you are very obliging. And hey, hey, what are you doing, Copperfield? Uh, mm, still, still in the wine trade? I was excessively anxious to get Mr. McWeber away, and replied with my hat in hand and a, and a very red face. I have no doubt that I was a, a pupil at Dr. Strong's. Oh, a pupil, said Mr. McWeber, raising his eyebrows. I am extremely happy to hear it, although a mind like my friend Copperfield's, to Uriah uh, and Mrs. Heap, does not require that cultivation which, without his knowledge of men and things, it would require. Still, it is a rich soil teeming with latent vegetation, in short said Mr. McWeber, <sighs> smiling in a burst of confidence. It is an intellect capable of getting up the classics to any extent. <laughs> Uriah, with his long hands, oh God, slowly twining over one another, oh, made a ghastly writhe from the waist upwards to express his concurrence in the estimation of me. Shall we go and see Mrs. McWeber, sir? I said, to get Mariah or McWeber away. If you will do her that favor, Copperfield, replied Mr. McWeber, rising, I have no scruple in saying, in the presence of our friends here, that I am a man who has, for some years, contended against the pressure of punctuary difficulties, period. That was a big, long paragraph with just a lot of commas. I knew he was certain to say something of this kind. He always would be so boastful about his difficulties. Sometimes... I have risen superior to my difficulties. Sometimes my ooh, difficulties have, in short, uh, have floored me. There have been times when I have uh, administered a succession of facures to them, and there have been many times when they have been too many for me, and I have given in and said to Miss McWeber, in the words of Cato, oh, now he's going to start quoting ancient Roman philosophers, or senators, Plato... Thou'st reasonest well. It's all up now. I can show fight no more. But at no time in my life, said Mr. McWhipper, have I enjoyed a higher degree of satisfaction than in pouring my griefs, if I may describe difficulties chiefly arising out of warrants of attorney and promissory notes at two and four months, and by that word, into the bosom of my friend Copperfield. So he pours his griefs into a child. That's got to stress a kid out. Mr. McWhipper closed this handsome tribute by saying, Mr. Heap, good evening. Mrs. Heap, your servant. And then walking out with me in his most fashionable manner, making a good deal of noise on the pavement, with his shoes, and humming a tune as he went. 
There's a little uh, inn where Mr. Wickweber put up, and he occupied a little room in it, partitioned off from the commercial room and strongly flavored with tobacco smoke. I think it was over the kitchen because a warm, greasy smell appeared to come up through the, the chinks in the floor. And there was a, a flabby perspiration on the walls. <laughs> what does a flabby perspiration on the walls look like? Does it fluctuate and move? What does that mean? I know it was near the bar on account of the smell of spirits and jingling of glasses. Here, recumbent on a small sofa, underneath a picture of a eh, eh, racehorse, with her head close to the fire and her feet pushing the mustard off the dumbwaiter. At the other end of the room was Miss McWeber, to whom Mr. McWeber entered first, saying, My dear, allow me to introduce you to a pupil of Dr. Strong's. I noticed that, by the by, that although Mr. McWeber was just as much confused as ever about my age and standing, he always remembered as a genteel thing that I was a pupil of Dr. Strong's. Mrs. McWeber was amazed, uh, but very glad to see me. I was very glad to see her, too, and, after an affectionate greeting on both sides, uh, sat down on the small sofa near her. I hope she moved her feet away from the mustard. Uh, "'My dear,' said Mr. McWeber, "'if you will mention to Copperfield "'what our present position is, "'which I have no doubt he will like to know, "'I will go and look at the paper for a while "'and see whether anything turns up "'among the adver advertisements.' "'So he shows up uninvited to this dinner "'or tea that this kid's at. "'Then he brings the kid back to his place, "'throws the kid at his wife. "'He's like, I'm going to go in the other room "'and read the paper for a while. "'Who is this person?' I thought you were at Plymouth, ma'am, I said to Miss McWeber as he went out. Oh, my dear Master Copperfield, she replied. We went to Plymouth. Uh, to be on the spot, I hinted. Oh, just so, said Miss McWeber, to be on the spot. But the truth is, talent is not wanted in the custom house. The local influence of my family was quite unavailing to obtain any employment in that department for a man of Miss McWeber's abilities. They would rather not, in italics, have a man of Mr. McWeber's abilities. Uh, he would only show the deficiency of others. Apart from which, said Mrs. McWeber, I will not disguise from you, my dear Master Copperfield, that when a, when a branch of my family, which is settled in Plymouth, uh, became aware that Mr. McWeber was accompanied by myself and uh, my little Wilkins uh, and his sister and by the twins, they did not receive him with that ardour which he might have expected. Being so newly released from captivity, in fact, said Mrs. McWeber, lowering her voice, this is between ourselves. Our reception was cool. Oh, dear me, I said. Yes, said Mrs. McWeber. It is truly painful to contemplate mankind in such an aspect, Mr. Copperfield, but our reception was decidedly cool. There is no doubt about it. In fact, that branch of my family, which is settled in Plymouth, became quite personal to Mr. McWeber before we had been there a week. I said, and thought, that they ought to be eh, ashamed of themselves. Still, so it was, continued Mr. McWeber, under such circumstances, eh, what could a man in Mr. McWeber's spirit do? But one obvious course was left, to borrow of that branch of my family, the money to return to London and to return at any sacrifice. Then you all came back again, ma'am, I said. Oh, we all came back again, replied Mrs. McWeber. Since then, I have consulted other branches of my family on the course which is most expedient for Mr. McWeber to take, for I maintain 
"'That he must take some course, Master Copperfield,' said Mrs. McWeber argumentatively. "'It is clear that a, a family of six, not including a domestic, cannot live upon uh, uh, air.' <laughs> "'Certainly, ma'am,' said I. "'The opinion of those other branches of my family,' pursued Mrs. McWeber, "'is that Mr. McWeber should immediately turn his attention to coals.' Uh, "'To what, ma'am?' Uh, to coals, said Mrs. McWeber. Uh, to the coal trade. Uh, Mr. McWeber was introduced to think on inquiry uh, there might be an opening for a man of his talent in the midway coal trade. Then, as Mr. McWeber very properly said, uh, the first step to be taken clearly was uh, to come and see the medway, uh, which we came and saw. I say we, in quotes, Master Copperfield, for I never will said Mrs. McWeber with emotion. I never will desert Mr. McWeber. I murmured my admiration and approbation. We came, repeated Mrs. McWeber, and saw the midway. My opinion of the coal trade on that river is that it may require talent, but that it certainly requires capital. Talent, Mr. McWeber has. Capital, Mr. McWeber has. it has not. We saw, I think, the greater part of the midway, uh, and that is my individual conclusion. Being so near here, Mr. McWeber uh, was of opinion that it would be rash not to come on and to see the, the cathedral, firstly, on account of it being so well worth seeing, and uh, never having seen it, and secondly, on account of the great probability of uh, something turning up in the cathedral town. We have been here, said Mrs. McWeber, three days. And nothing has, as yet, turned up. And it may not surprise you, my dear Master Copperfield, so much as it would a stranger, to know that uh, we are at present uh, waiting for remittance from London to discharge our punctuary obligations at this hotel until the, the arrival of the admittance, said Mrs. McWeber with much feeling. I am cut off from my home, parentheses, I allude to lodgings in Pentonville, from my boy and girl, and from my twins. I felt the utmost sympathy for Mr. and Mrs. McWeber in this anxious extremity and said as much to Mr. McWeber, who uh, who now returned, added that I only wished I had enough money uh, to lend them the amount they needed. And Mr. McWeber's answer expressed the disturbance of his mind. He said, shaking hands with me, Copperfield, you are a true friend. But when the worst comes to the worst, no man is without a friend who is possessed of shaving materials. Shaving, shaving materials like a shaving kit or shaving things off of materials. At this dreadful hint of Mr. McWeber, threw his arms around Miss Oh Mrs. McWeber, threw her arms around Mr. McWeber's neck and entreated him uh, to be calm. Oh, he wept, but so far recovered almost immediately to ring the bell for the waiter and bespake uh, a hot kidney pudding and a plate of uh, uh, mm, shrimps for breakfast in the morning. When I took my leave of them, they both pressed me so much to come and, and dine before they went away that I could not refuse. But as I knew I could not come next day when I should have a good deal to prepare in the evening, Mr. McWeber arranged that he would call at Dr. Strong's in the course of the morning, uh, having a presentment that the remittance would arrive by that post and propose the day after, uh, if it would suit me better, Accordingly, I uh, was called out of school the next uh, forenoon and found Mr. McWeber uh, in the parlor. 
who had called to say that the dinner would take place as proposed. When I asked him that the remittance had come, he, he pressed my hand and departed. Poor guy's just waiting on money. Can't get it. But he's also just throwing himself deeper into debt while he does it. As I was looking out of the window that same evening, it surprised me and made me rather uneasy to see Mr. McWeber, ooh, and Uriah Heap walk past. Eh, uh, arm in arm. Uriah humbly sensible of the honor that was done him, and Mr. McWeber taking a bland delight in extending his patronage to Uriah. But I was still more surprised when I went to the little hotel the next day at the appointed dinner hour, uh, which was four o'clock, to find, from what Mr. McWeber said, uh, that he had gone home with Uriah and had drunk brandy and water. Uh, and Mrs. Heaps. And I'll tell you what, my dear Copperfield, Field, <laughs> said Mr. McWeber, your friend Heap is a young fellow who might be an attorney general. Oh, if I had known that young man at the period when my difficulties came to a crisis, all I can say is that I believe my creditors would have been a great deal better managed than they were. I like how all this guy does is think about himself. And then when he meets somebody else that he thinks is talented, he's just like, oh man, boy, I could use him. Or could have if I was younger. I don't know what his point was. I hardly understand how this could have been, seeing that Mr. McWeber had paid them nothing at all as it was. But I didn't like to ask, neither did I like to say, that I hoped he had not been too communicative with uh, Uriah or to inquire if he had talked much about me. I was afraid of hurting Mr. McWeber's feelings, or at all events, Mrs. McWeber's, she being very sensitive, but I was uh, uncomfortable about it too and often thought about it afterwards. Yeah, we had a beautiful little dinner. Uh, quite an elegant dish of fish. Uh, the kidney end of a loin of veal, roasted, Fried sausage meat, uh, a partridge, oh, 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 and a pudding. Oh, there was wine. He's ten. There was wine. Uh, there was strong ale. Yeah, he's ten. And after dinner, Mrs. McWeber made us a bowl of hot punch with her, with her own hands. Mr. McWeber was uncommonly convenial. I never saw him such good company. He made his face shine with the punch, so that it looked as if it had been varnished all over. That's gross. He got cheerfully sentimental about the town and, and proposed success to it. Well, that's nice of him. Observing that Mrs. McWeber and himself had been made extremely snug and comfortable there, and that he should never forget the agreeable hours they had passed in Canterbury. He proposed me afterwards, uh, and he, and Miss McWeber, uh, and I took a review of our past acquaintance, in the course of which we sold the property all over again, and I proposed Miss McWeber, or at least said modestly, if you'll allow me, uh, Miss McWeber, I shall now have the pleasure of drinking your health in italics, ma'am, on which Mr. McWeber delivered a eulogium on Mrs. McWeber's character and said she had never been his guide, philosopher, oh, had ever been his guide, philosopher, and friend, and that he would recommend me when I came to a marrying time of life to marry such another woman, if such another woman could be found. Well, as the punch disappeared, Mr. McWeber became still more friendly and convenial. Uh, Mrs. McWeber's spirits became uh, becoming elevated, too. We sang all Lang Syne. And when we came to, quote, here's a hand, my trusty frere, we all joined hands around the table, and when we declared that we would, quote, take a right guide, Willie Watt, and uh, hadn't the least idea what it meant, we were really affected. In a word, I never saw anybody so thoroughly jovial as Mr. McWeber was, 
down to the very last moment of the evening, when I took a hearty farewell of himself and his amiable wife. Consequently, I was not prepared at seven o'clock the next morning uh, to receive the following communication, dated half past nine in the evening, a quarter of an hour later after I had left him. My dear young friend, the die is cast. All is over. Hiding the ravages of care with a sickly mask of mirth, I have not informed you this evening that there is no hope of the remittance. Under these circumstances, alike humiliating to endure, humiliating to contemplate, and humiliating to relate, I have discharged the punctuary liability contracted in this establishment by giving a note of hand made payable 14 days after date at my residence, Paytonville, London. And when it comes due... Oh, it'll not be taken up. Uh, the result is destruction. The bolt is impending and the tree must fall. Let the wretched man who now addresses you, my dear Copperfield, be a beacon to you through your life. He writes with that intention. And in that hope, if he could think himself so much use, one gleam of day might, by possibility, penetrate into the cheerfulness uh, dungeon of the uh, remaining existence. Uh, through his longevity is, at present, to say the least of it, extremely problematical. This is the last communication, my dear Copperfield, you will ever receive from the beggared outcast, Wilkins McWeber. Well, I was so shocked by the contents of this heart-rending letter that I uh, ran off directly towards the little hotel with the intention of taking it on my way to Dr. Strong's and, 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 trying, to, and trying to soothe Mr. McWeber with a, well, I don't know, a word of comfort, but halfway there, I met the London coach with Mr. and Mrs. McWeber up behind, uh, Mr. McWeber, ooh, the very picture of tranquil enjoyment, smiling at Miss McWeber's conversation, uh, eating, eating, eating walnuts out of, a, out of a paper bag with a bottle sticking out of his breast pocket. And as they did not see me, I thought it best, all things considered, not to see them. So, with a great weight taken off my mind, I turned into a by street that was the nearest way to school and felt upon the whole relieved that they were gone. Uh, though I still like them very much, uh, nevertheless. Well, with that, why don't we retire to the, uh, yeah, crap, this bit I'm doing, I forget the rooms we got. Uh, the, the smoking room. Ah, let's retire to the smoking room where we can review what we've read and, uh, and, uh, and discuss what we think. Get yourself all settled in. Uh, hey, I don't know. This bit, I can't remember what I did from episode to episode. Leather chair? Ah, let's move on. Let's recap the chapter. Uh, first, Mr. Dick starts showing up to check on David, and uh, and he's so quirky and cute, all the kids at school love him. And even Dr. Strong gets into uh, reading the dictionary to him, of all things. Mr. Dick talks about how some weird guy keeps creeping up on Miss Betsy, uh, trying to get money or something. And Uriah Heep is just doing the humble thing, uh, and it's written very annoyingly, and passive-aggressively talks David into having tea with him and his mom. And David finds himself getting swept up with the gossip with the Heaps, and uh, gives away more than he wanted to, because they're cunning, and know how to manipulate a man. Then uh, Mr. McWeber shows up, invites himself in, and scoops David away. David's all embarrassed, uh, 
And, uh, well, it didn't get scooped away, just kind of smooths Mick Weber out of the house. And then David learns that Mick Weber's lives uh, keep sucking, uh, and there's nothing they can do to get a job. And they're deep in debt, and even though they're in debt, they're still lounging around, ordering puddings, and putting their big toes in mustard. Uh, David learns that Mr. Mick Weber's, uh, uh, they start hanging out with Uriah Heep, and David's worried about all the gossiping that's probably going on right now with them. Because Uriah and his creepy mom are just scooping up information, probably to help him with his law firm ambitions. The McWebbers can't pay for the hotel they're in, so they send him a letter saying that uh, we got to scooch out of town. David likes him, but he's kind of glad to see him go at the same time because... <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, because they're just uh, needy people, like psychic vampires, sucking the life out of David. Uh, what's good? Apparently David's important now. He's still only 10, but uh, now he's a major player with all these people that leech off him. What sucks? Uh, the heaps are bad people, but uh, the author's just writing them that way. If you remove all the wet hands and the writhing torsos and everything that Uriah's doing, he's just a guy trying to make his way in the world. Uh, what do we learn? Even this deep in 17 chapters, uh, everyone around David is selfish. All the adults either take advantage of him or just just complain at him about their own petty little lives. Uh, and even Peggy, uh, all she ever does is fawn on him when he's around, uh, but never actually like does anything to help him in his life. Uh, just kind of says, uh, she did take him briefly to live in the boathouse and then said, ah, you should probably go see your aunt. Uh, so they're glad to see him around, but don't really worry about him all that much on their free time. Uh, the heaps are using gossip as a way to work their way up the social ladder, probably, to take over Mr. Wickfield's business. And uh, it, it, we learn that there's a sneaky man around Miss Betsy. I imagine probably a, some kind of relative or uh, old lover that she jilted, and now she has to pay him money to get him to, to get lost. So there you go. That was Chapter 17. Uh, hope you liked it. And uh, I will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the part of the podcast I hate the most, where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. You can tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night. Uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now, there's there's that. Uh, I, I, are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business, to begin with, just to meet cool people, not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read, uh, along with episodes from the Book Boys and uh, blah, blah, blah. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is uh, House Nuzzle. And conveniently enough, uh, Twitter, which is also at House Nuzzle. Annoyingly, YouTube made me pick a name instead of just a House Nuzzle. So you got Glenn Nuzzles. So I guess you search for that if you want to watch a screen that doesn't do anything and just hear my voice. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool, you can always just email me directly. Glenn.Nuzzles at gmail.com but don't uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork 
Now, back to business. I can't believe I drank all of them already. There's gotta be one left. 